evening and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. I'm Maggie Williams, Director of the Institute of Politics here at Harvard. Our conversation tonight will be moderated by General Dana Bourne. General Bourne is a lecturer in public policy here at the Kennedy School. She came to HKS after a remarkable career in the United States Air Force, where she began as a second lieutenant and retired as a brigadier general and dean of the faculty at the Air Force Academy. General Bourne's highly decorated military service included, among a wide range of critical assignments, serving as commander of the 11th Mission Support Squadron at Bowling Air Force Base, a tour of duty as an exchange officer with the Royal Australian Air Force, service as a speechwriter, a policy analyst, and an aide to the Secretary of the Air Force and serving as a professor and head of the Department of Behavioral Science and Leadership at the Air Force Academy. While an Air Force officer, the general also managed to earn several graduate degrees, including a doctorate in industrial and organizational philosophy. We are so excited and honored that she brings such deep learning and leadership experience to the forum tonight and we are all very grateful for her service. Thank you. Okay, I am in trouble tonight because the uh, moderator's bio shouldn't be longer than the panel introductions. And I also, I've been told already by Chief Justice Marshall that if I keep calling her Chief Justice Marshall, she's gonna keep calling me general. And <laughs> She also told me not to have longer than a two-sentence introduction, so I'm uh, on report if I go longer than that. But thank you all for being here tonight for uh, the conservative case for marriage equality and the future of religion with LBGTQ issues. Uh, we have a distinguished and also a distinctive panel tonight, and I'm going to introduce each of them briefly and then we'll have a few questions, and then we'll open it up to the floor for your questions and conversation with our panelists. Uh, tonight, we have on the panel three people who represent three different continents, three different generations. All of them have a connection here to Harvard University, and all of them have a, a common purpose with regard to addressing issues of recognition, uh, rights, and dignity of LBGTQ issues. And I'm gonna start with Chief Justice Marshall and in introducing her first. Uh, she comes from South Africa, born there, and did her master's degree here in education at Harvard University in 1969. She got her law degree at some other Ivy League somewhere near here starts with why, we typically go, why? <laughs> with all due respect, ma'am. <laughs> I should have stopped, <laughs> I should have kept going. Uh, she also has a history that goes back 40 years of working uh, issues as a student with regard to civil rights in South Africa. Uh, 30 years later, she's most known, as you all know, as the decision here for the first state for same-sex marriage, which was monumental and uh, was a precursor to a decision made last summer uh, which had national implications. So we're very fortunate. Would you not uh, join me in saying thank you for joining our panel tonight? 
And Andrew Sullivan is from the UK. He uh, has two degrees from Harvard University, one from the Kennedy School here in 1986 in Masters in Public Administration, as well as a PhD in government from the Kennedy School in 1990. Not from the Kennedy School. I'm sorry, not from the Kennedy School. From uh, in government. government. We'll, we'll, we'll adopt you and <laughs> make you an honorary doctor from the Kennedy School. Uh, he is also very well known as an editor and an author and a blogger, probably one of the premier political bloggers. Many of you know him from The Dish. He is uh, author of several books. He is a lifetime conservative, a longtime conservative. And he also is in the process right now of writing a book on Christianity. And he is known for really a, a preeminent writing in the late 80s with regard to uh, marriage equality for LGBTQ issues. So please welcome Andrew Sullivan. And on the far end of our panel tonight, we have Matthew Vines. Uh, Matthew was born in 1990. Uh, you'll note that I chose not to introduce when the other two panelists were born. <laughs> uh, but 1990, uh, he's from Kansas in the United States. He just had a big move from Wichita to Kansas City. <laughs> uh, Andrew was a student here at Harvard from 2008 to 2010 and left to go uh, study the Bible, which resulted in his book called God and the Gay Christian. Uh, I believe your father is here tonight and uh, has a copy of your book. Where's dad? Can you hold up a copy of Andrew's book? Matthew. Matthew, Matthew I'm sorry, Matthew's book. Uh, Matthew will be signing after our panel tonight at the Coop if you're interested uh, in his book. And it's wonderful to have uh, dad here with us tonight. And Matthew, it's good to have you back here on the Harvard campus. Matthew's got, uh, he's the president and founder of the Reformation a nonprofit that is doing a lot of work to have uh, evangelical Christian churches relook at uh, how they're teaching and advancing uh, LBGTQ issues as well as gender identity issues and also looking at enhancing roles for LBGTQ members within the church. So Matthew, it's great to have you on the panel as well. Please welcome Matthew. So I'm gonna start off to, I teach authentic leadership in the spring here, so I thought I'd start with an authentic leadership question since uh, these three members have been uh, advancing LBGTQ issues in their own way. And I'd like to ask you, in what way has your personal story been part of the kinds of things that you have been doing uh, in, in, in your way? So I, whoever would like to, uh, I don't want to cold call uh, a no, panel you're, you're, member. So I see maybe that I'll start because I may be where many of you were or perhaps many Americans were um, I had not read Mr. Sullivan's wonderful piece in 1989, and I do recommend it, uh, Andrew, not because you're here. Uh, but I start there because um, one of the questions I get asked the most frequently is, aren't you surprised how quickly the issue of gay marriage has moved in the United States? And my answer always is, it depends from whose point of view. The first law cases were filed almost 50 years ago. And so reading one of our most distinguished writers, and I 
regret to say I had not read that essay until you mentioned it, and it is a beautiful conservative statement. And so conservative to me means the following. Hansel makes very clear that what we're talking about is civil marriage, not religious marriage. And so when the case came to the Supreme Judicial Court, it was an issue about which I had thought almost nothing. Uh, in a sense that if you're an appellate justice, that often happens. I mean, the, the question is presented. Now, the difference between a judge and a legislature or legislature and a governor or a president is we can do only one thing, which is decide. We can't kick it to a legislative committee. We can't send it back to the voters. We have to decide the case. And the way you decide the case is by looking at the facts and looking at the arguments, and in this case, looking importantly at what the Commonwealth's arguments were against the institution of civil marriage. If you go back and read my opinion, one of the things that confronted us was the enormous benefits that both the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the United States were providing to certain couples. So apart from anything else, I mean, just enormous benefits from questions of immigration to social welfare to inheritance rights. I mean, er almost everything was attached to marriage, which it had not been, you know, since the invention of marriage, whenever that was. I mean, the state was mostly out of it. And so what we were confronted with was really not a simple question, but a question that really didn't touch on religion qua religion. So there's seven justices on the, on the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. Four of us decided that the Commonwealth could not deny the privileges and benefits of marriage to people of the same gender. Um, I think of the four, three of us were appointed by Republican governors. Uh, there was one Roman Catholic, two Protestants, I'm Episcopalian, and one Jewish person on the panel. So it really was a, a decision about civil marriage. And it, of course, it led to very rapid changes in the United States, but people have been seeking this for much longer than since 2003. So for me to begin my journey, I think I probably began in much the same place that the vast majority of Americans began. And that was roughly 2000, 2001 long time after the 1989 decision, and certainly when you were still a kid. <laughs> Andrew? Um, I think two things, really. One was that um, I uh, was brought up in a conservative Catholic home and at some point asked myself, why is what is available to my brother and sister not available to me? And, and why not? <laughs> uh, the second uh, factor was uh, the catastrophe of the epidemic, um, that I watched so many of my friends and uh, my best friend and my ex-boyfriend die in a staggeringly short amount of time. Five times as many young men died of HIV in the same period as died in the Vietnam War. Five times as many. And for those of us who were in that community, it was uh, devastating. And the indignities visited upon people who were in terrible situations was uh, in, in emboldening 
um, I'll give you one small story. A friend of mine, and this can be replicated a thousand times. A friend of mine uh, used to visit another friend of mine as he was dying in hospital. And it was in an AIDS ward, and uh, he went to see him. It was kind of grim. This was the days when we were sequestered into our own wards, um, bodies disposed in plastic bags. Um, and next to the bed of my friend, uh, there was another bed with a, a curtain drawn around it, you know, like the way they do in hospitals. And from inside the, uh, the, the curtain, you could hear someone singing a pop song. And my friend made a comment and said, well, at least someone's cheerful. And my friend replied, oh, no, that's not him. That's his spouse. Uh, the patient's family has thrown him out of his apartment. They have bought him from the funeral. They have taken the body. Uh, they wouldn't let him visit in the last two days. And this is the last space that he has to share with someone he's lived with for 20 years. And that's the song that they heard as they got together. And the nurses don't quite yet have the heart to ask him to leave. That's why I did this. That's why this was important to me, because for people to be treated uh, as subhuman in their hour of need, simply because they didn't have the right to marry, and therefore their spouses did not have the right to even see them as they died, was uh, an assault upon my conscience and uh, an indictment of an entire civilization. I don't want to cut preempt empt Matthew, but I think that that was one of the things that actually drove the recognition that marriage was critical and that civil unions, which is what Vermont started with, or domestic partners weren't, because not to be able to go to a hospital, whether for your partner or whether for a child that you have helped raise, or to be cut off from any other kind of benefit, that was almost more, it seemed to me, you know, reading all the briefs than being denied social security benefits. It was that intensely personal time when you want to be there as part of your family, wherever families are, and to be told that you couldn't be there because some institution or another didn't recognize your status, I think is perhaps one of the most demeaning things that we can do any set of human beings. I, I might add, since we're talking a little bit about religion, as a Catholic, <laughs> uh, I have no doubt where Jesus would have been uh, insofar as the church was defending this indignity. It was profoundly wrong. And therefore, I felt, I think a little like Matthew feels, that this had to be tackled also in the churches and had to be tackled uh, within one's own tradition. Nice transition, Matthew. How old were you with your when you uh, were looking at the fairness issue with your siblings? Twelve or thirteen. Awesome. Well, first of all, I just want to say it's really an honor to be here and to be on stage with two people who, uh, in their own way, had quite a significant impact on my own coming of age and awareness of myself and self-confidence. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, in an evangelical Christian family and church 
that was really the center of our family's social circles and the heart of so much of our community. I didn't even know that gay people existed until 2003, really. Um, and the, it was when, and I had met some gay people in a musical that I had done, um, surprise, um, <laughs> I think a year earlier. But when uh, civil unions, and just to illustrate kind of the difference between civil unions and marriage, when Vermont legalized civil unions in 2000, I did not hear about this. But even as a young evangelical kid in a community where there was absolutely no openness to LGBT people, when you wrote your ruling in 2003, that was a veritable earthquake in Kansas, in conservative communities. And of course, it wasn't a positive earthquake in terms of how people responded to it. But what that did is it created the level of visibility that was not there before and it advanced the conversation more powerfully than any other single event. And I think that that impact has only continued to be amplified as same-sex marriage first was legalized in other states and then of course with this year's Supreme Court ruling. But I still, and then Andrew, not only did he help to pave the way for that ruling for many years, but I started reading The Dish faithfully every day starting in 2007. <laughs> And he was the first gay Christian that I really knew existed. So come 2008, I graduated from high school and I came here to Harvard. Um, moved into Thayer and uh, had an interesting first year, not necessarily the best first year. Um, was dealing with a lot of um, issues and I also happened to join the only groups on campus that would not be supportive if I came out, which were the conservative Christian fellowships. And however, those were really some of the best community that I found uh, in my time here. And I still have a lot, of, a lot of good friends from those groups. My sophomore fall, I came to terms with the fact that I was gay, which I was really not thrilled about, primarily because um, there was no precedent for anybody back home uh, in Kansas coming out and finding any kind of support or acceptance from our church or even from their own families. I ended up deciding to take a semester off from Harvard, went home, and I just, I came out to my parents, and then just started studying the Bible and same-sex relationships with my parents, especially for my dad, who is here tonight. Uh, that was his major concern, was his interpretation of scripture and these six texts in scripture that refer to same-sex relations negatively. By about June or July, of, after being home for six, seven months, we had been reading and talking every day and discussing enough to really help him to come to an understanding he did not expect to come to of becoming more embracing of same-sex relationships. Then I came back here for one semester and then I decided that I wanted to go home and expand my engagement efforts with our whole church and with all of our friends and I haven't stopped since. I also haven't been back since. Um, so this is my first event back here since I left um, FOHO, do we have any FOHO residents? Um, in 2010, I, since then, I gave a talk in Wichita that's now been seen about a million times online, making the case for why conservative Christians, why and how they can interpret the Bible in a way that supports same-sex relationships. Wrote a book last year on this topic, and really part of the driving force behind all of this is feeling such a chasm between the world that exists here at Harvard and the world that exists for so many 
other people, even in the United States, much more conservative, that is far more religiously centered and rooted. And what I experienced, I kind of experienced two mirror dynamics. One in Kansas, feeling like so many people at my church didn't have the slightest clue of what they were talking about when it came to LGBT people, uh, because they didn't know any openly LGBT people. But also, like so many people here at Harvard, had a lot of caricatured perceptions of conservative Christians to the point of feeling like they are irrational, fundamentalist bigots who can't be reasoned with. And I knew from growing up with them and from having those people be my father and my mother and so many of our good friends that that just wasn't the case. Yes, there is bigotry out there, of course, but there are so many conservative Christians who are amenable to reasoned engagement and argument, but the way that it happens, when it happens purely on secular or political terms, that's not going to really be adequate for them. Um, and I know from my own faith, my own grounding in my faith, how important the Bible is for conservative Christians. So, so much of the work that I've been doing since then is around engaging conservative Christians on this topic, really on their own terms, through a strong commitment to scripture, wanting to be respectfully, reverently engaging the text of scripture, rather than setting that aside. There's only 25. Very articulate, and, and thank you very much for sharing so much of your personal journey. I'd like to get at the uh, issue of choice and whether or not this is, you know, if you're born that way or if you've chosen to live a certain lifestyle and what role that plays in, in the work that you do or in your opinions about these issues. Uh, there's a lot of research that shows if it's particularly for conservative political uh, policy that if people consider something to be choice, they are um, less likely to be supportive as if it's something that it, you're born that way. Um, so I'm just kind of curious of your opinion about this notion of choice. Or Very point. important, and Matthew knows about this, has happened recently within the evangelical movement, which is the rejection of reparative therapy from the top on down, which is a huge step forward. Um, the, 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 the basic answer is we don't know <laughs> why some people are gay and some people are not. We don't. Um, it's still amazing to me that we don't, but we don't. And it's probably highly compl complicated. It almost certainly has something to do with genes. It has something to do with hormones. It has something to do with upbringing, whatever. But um, I would point this out. Even if you are a hardcore reparative therapist, uh, the reparative therapist believes it's fixed by the age of three. So even the ones who think you can cure it think it's done by three. Quite how you cure it before three is another extraordinarily difficult question. Uh, so I think it's experienced as unchosen, and that's really, the, I think, the best way to put it, uh, phenomenologically, which is that that, that, that is how most uh, gay people describe how they um, became uh, uh, homosexual. I think there are many different homosexualities, um, and I think there are many different paths to each one, just as I think there are many forms of heterosexuality. So I think it's on, it, I think most people accept now that that Matthew and I and others are not just full-fledged lying our entire lives, you know? And that's, that's, a, that's, that's a bare minimum for civil discourse, I think. We don't have to resolve this fundamentally. Well, I think in one sense, it's incredibly important to acknowledge that, it's, that being gay or being bisexual or being trans is not a choice. Uh, that is what really makes, if you go back to Andrew's original arguments from 1989, 
the, the way that the logic flows, what makes the argument compelling is by starting with the premise that gay people exist. And then what do we do with that is the question. And if you acknowledge that premise, then the logic becomes fairly irresistible. Likewise, there is a way that that reality is important in the theological argument that I make because a lot of the argument is premised on distinguishing between, for instance, what the Apostle Paul had in view in his discussion and condemnation of same-sex relations in Romans chapter one and the conversation we're having today about sexual orientation. But I always try to be careful. A lot of conservative Christians sort of respond to the fact that people are, whether you're born gay or simply are gay for reasons that aren't really changeable, they'll say, well, just because you know we, we live in a fallen world, we have a fallen human nature, and just because something is natural does not necessarily make it good or make it right. And I think that that is true in theory, but you have to look sort of in what is the, and people always come up with somewhat, to many people um, in this room, probably absurd analogies to other predispositions biologically that would be, uh, and no one has almost ever done this in a way that wasn't offensive. You know, Rick Warren will go on TV and say, well, if I get angry and just want to slap someone, that may be natural, and you just think, okay, you need to work on that analogy. But, <laughs> um, but it is true, and so I, you know, that just, you don't want to sort of um, accept or bless everything that's natural, but that's not the end point, that's the starting point. The, the, the fact that gay people, the fact that LGBT people exist, this is a necessary reality to acknowledge pastorally, but then when it comes to the theology of marriage and sexuality, of course you have to go beyond that to ask what is, from a Christian standpoint, what is the Bible's basis or vision for human marriage and sexuality. As I argue, that is fundamentally rooted in the idea of covenant and covenant keeping in a way that the book of Ephesians talks about reflecting the covenant that God makes with humanity through Christ and that spouses are supposed to be reflecting that covenantal love and sacrificial love in their own lives, that that's something same-sex relationships can fulfill. So same-sex marriage is not a necessity because being gay is natural. Same-sex marriage is a necessity because of the quality and the goodness and the importance of what same-sex relationships are and represent in gay people's lives. I'm probably the least qualified to comment on that, uh, you know, issue of choice, but I will say this. Um, I think what you are engaged in, Matthew, is terribly important, and it's also what I love most about the United States. I mean, Andrew and I are both immigrants. I don't represent South Africa any more than, are you a citizen yet, by the way? I'm, I'm about to be. Excellent. <laughs> this is very, prevented, I mean, <laughs> prevented for 20 years because exactly. of, a, because I was of not HIV. Uh, in, in any event, the one thing that's, um, because I'm often asked about whether my experiences in South Africa influenced my decision in Goodridge, and the answer to that is, on the surface, no. That is to say, you don't go in and sort of looking at your experience. But in South Africa, as in so many totalitarian countries, and even those um, that are not, we just know that um, gay, you know, I can't get into the whole, you know, GBLTQ, but certainly, you know, homosexuals, to use that, are often, often, often an oppressed minority, often. And second, 
there's often a religious basis to it, which is not to call into question why people believe that, except to say that it's a recurring theme through big chunks, not all of human history. Um, but that is not specific to gay people. I mean, for, for a long time, certainly in South Africa and certainly in the United States, when it had come to civil rights and civil liberties, human rights and human liberties, which is not the religious basis, we have often given a religious explanation for it. And so I think that that is something that we have to tussle with in the United States. And so from my point of view, I was asked by one of the wonderful students beforehand what I saw as the future, you know, whether the, you know, whether, whether the issue of, you know, the, op the religious opposition would stand in the way. I would hope in the United States the answer to that is no, because we're really talking about, you know, the involvement of the state in a civil union, a civil marriage, but we should also be recognized that as a society, we've often used religion to deny those to all kinds of people, all kinds of people that we have wanted to exclude from full participation in our society. And so, um, I'm a practicing Christian, but my emphasis is not on reforming or talking to or engaging in conversation, but I certainly know that conversation is always the very best place to start. And coming out of South Africa, there was a powerful religious basis for supporting apartheid. And it is not terribly helpful to simply say, well, they're just stupid or ignorant or won't listen or anything else. It is really not a helpful way to go. Um, That's a wonderful transition into you know, where is the hockey puck going with regard to these issues? And, you know, I, I, in 30 years in the military, we went through, you know, having the don't ask, don't tell, which we thought was progress <laughs> to repeal. And then we knew the Defense of Marriage Act was going to be the next hurdle uh, through the justice system. So where is the hockey puck going and what role do you see yourselves uh, playing in that? <laughs> I th I, I'm looking forward to ending the gay civil rights movement at some point in the near future. Um, the, and this depends on your view of politics, of course, but uh, my general view, which is a more libertarian one, which is once we have removed active government discrimination, especially in areas where there are very profound and probably irresolvable conflicts of values, we should do our best to let the society work its way out on the stuff. Uh, it takes time. People need space to think about this. Um, I think that what Matthew's doing is absolutely critical. I think what a lot of us are trying to do within the Catholic structure is absolutely critical. Um, we obviously have 18 states without employment non-discrimination laws, uh, which I think we can and should be able to do on a state level because it, we will not pass it uh, nationally in any foreseeable future. Uh, and, uh, and then that's about it. Once we, once I would like us to abolish hate crime laws, <laughs> which Helen <laughs> Hill will agree with, we'll be fine. Um, and, and the job of gay people is to get on with our lives. And, and the, the job of politics should at some point end and the challenges of life should begin, and I think there is a, a great danger in clinging to the politics of oppression 
when those uh, politics cease to be relevant. In other words, the, the gay community needs to learn to take yes for an answer. And, and is in danger at this moment, in my view, of overplaying their hand and being sore winners in this extraordinary moment and seeking to actively punish and penalize and ostracize people with whom they may disagree. Uh, when, when we now have majority support in the country, I don't want us to behave the way that the majority did when we were the minority. And I think allowing for maximal religious freedom for people is, is, is an, I, I, I feel as committed to religious freedom as an issue in the future as I do to uh, gay equality and dignity. But I'm a minority view, obviously. Well, I, don't think, <laughs> I don't think you are a minority view. I think it's going to, I, I couldn't agree with you more. That is to say, I think uh, we have, in that sense, moved very dramatically from 2003. Um, and I think, I have no idea about this, but I think part of the reason is because there is something about marriages. I mean, I always like to use this example. Who do you invite to your wedding? Well, you invite your parents, and then your siblings, and then your roommates, and then your graduate school mates, and then your you know, people that you work with. And they're not all gay. And then they have to decide whether or not to come to your wedding, and they probably do. And most people walk down an aisle of one kind or another. And sometimes they stamp on a glass, and other times they don't. I mean, I'm just talking about regular old weddings. And I think see, there was a kind of moment when this commonwealth, I can't talk nationally, began, began to see lots and lots of people just very happy. And I began to get all kinds of letters. And people started sending me marriage programs which quoted from Goodridge, and by the way, also Yeats and Shakespeare. I bet you can't say that, Andrew, <laughs> right? I mean, that's sort of company in which to be. Oh. And, but mostly, I think, it wasn't hidden. You know, one's sexual orientation was no longer hidden. You can't, I can't tell, you know, the sexual orientation of somebody. And having, I think that made a difference. I can't possibly speak for being a parent. But I think watching their children being celebrated in that way must have been enormously reinforcing. Watching their children being employed without discrimination is enormously important. I mean, a lot of parents, they just are concerned for the future of their children, and not because they have a particular view. They may not have a particular the view. Wedding. No, just the, is, is amazing. Uh, I mean, I've been writing about this for God knows how many years, and and actually never expected to get married myself because I was, just wasn't that kind of, I was. <laughs> Thank you, I did earlier. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very grateful. For, um, the, but I was for the Massachusetts Constitution. The Massachusetts, which, which, under which I got married um, three years later. But the, uh, uh, the, the, I was bowled over by, how it, by the actual ceremony sure. with my parents and my family and my friends. I mean, it was just sort of, and they too were completely over, overwhelmed by this in a way that we did not expect. Um, and I'll tell you another anecdote. My niece, who was a, a flower, flower uh, she was actually the ring bearer. She was only seven. A few years later, went to mass, like not so long ago in England, when the hierarchy was beginning to, to send out messages telling them to oppose the marriage equality bill, which was passed by the Conservative Party in Britain. Sure. Uh, just to remind you what conservatism actually is as opposed to the 
crazy radicalism that we have over here. And uh, <laughs> on, the way, on the way back, she said to my mom, why are they saying such horrible things about Uncle Aaron, Uncle Andrew? Why would they do that? It's a church. And she has not been back since. So at some point, this, con this evolution of consciousness uh, is from the ground up, you see it from the next generation, is even more, they've assimilated this as a, what I was always fascinated by was the possibility of a six or seven year old, when I was a six or seven year old thinking about the future, what am I gonna do with my life? All I could see was a black, black hole. I didn't know, I couldn't marry, I didn't, I didn't know what I could do, or where I would go, I got depressed. I think all I thought about was getting married. Right. Right, I mean, that's what I did. That's I what we were all told was gonna be the happiest day of our life. And the idea that a gay kid, even one who isn't fully out or even fully self-aware yet, knows that's there, will alter the psyche, will remove what was essentially a psychic wound deep in their soul and self-worth that will create a gay community and a gay culture that is gonna be just so wonderfully diverse, interesting. We're gonna find out what we have in common as gay people, if not oppression. And it may not be that much, actually. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Certainly, that's true, I think, for gays and lesbians, um, whose who's, who's, who's life, ways of life are so completely different. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I do think the consciousness has shifted in a way that, that, that we should have let, let evolve in the society. I, I mean, I'm a conservative. I think in slow change and let the, let the incremental change work and let it hold and let us begin to make inroads within especially the religious communities. Absolutely. Like we have, we have in the Synod right now in Rome, we have huge movement within the Catholic Church now. We have what Matthew's doing. And if we can shift the religious denominations, then we're getting at the core of it. Uh, and, and, and that I think is why I, 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 I love this man and what he's doing. And I'm glad he dropped out of Harvard. <laughs> well, and so also on the question, on this broad question of the future and what lies ahead, I focus in what I do primarily on two main dynamics. One is looking toward more conservative religious communities. I often talk, so in the organization I run, the Reformation Project, we host conferences around the country working to train and equip Christians, especially those in more conservative churches, who want the resources and the tools, especially the Bible-based tools, to help to open up conversations in their churches. And so I often describe churches as lying along a spectrum. And even in very conservative churches, you often find three main groups of thought on this topic. You have a group of people who are passionate opponents of any further openness or any dialogue. Those tend to be the loudest voices, and they can be very dispiriting to people simply watching people who represent, say, evangelical Christians on cable news or in a number of other widely distributed media. But while that, those people are absolutely there and tend to hold a lot of power and a lot of weight, they're not the only people there. I would say probably the majority of people agree with them but are not nearly as passionate about it and just don't think about it that much. My dad certainly thought that gayness was a sin, but he never would have written a letter to the editor or done any activism or protests because that just wasn't really in his nature. So he does agree, he, at the time, not anymore, he did agree with that group, but wasn't really gonna go to bat for the issue in the same way. But 
in almost any church, even the very conservative ones, there's a minority of people who I call silent sympathizers, people who, whether due to relationships in their lives or other factors, feel deeply conflicted over their church's posture on this topic and are much more open to seeing a way to try to fit the pieces together of their faith, their theological framework, and greater openness to LGBT people. And if you can show them, if you can identify and empower those people through relationship and through community, they're the ones who are most likely to be able to reach the folks who are kind of in the middle. You, there are some people you cannot have a successful conversation with at this point. Um, and so I'm just, I just encourage people, well, don't worry about that because there are lots of other people you can. And maybe 10 years down the road, some of those people you can't talk to today will be more open for varying reasons. So there's that sort of direction of just wanting to encourage people not to write off an entire swath of the country as hopelessly bigoted. Um, and making sure that even when there are situations like the whole Kim Davis um, sort of fiasco um, in Kentucky, that, uh, you know, yes, that's frustrating. Yes, she shouldn't have been doing that. But at the same time, like, is it news that there are millions of Americans who are still deeply, viscerally opposed to same-sex marriage? That's not news, that's just another reminder of how much work has to be done. And the work is not done well. Like, absolutely, it's fine for people to criticize her, but a lot of the, the tone can sometimes uh, veer into, you know, misogyny and classism don't magically become appropriate because someone is acting oppressively. Uh, there are lots of things that, you know, restraint, respect, are really good traits to have because you're not just speaking to that person, you're speaking to so many people who for whatever reason sympathize with that person. Uh, and so I think that there just needs to be a, a hope in reason discourse and reason dialogue. That is, that is why this movement for marriage equality succeeded in a way in which many other progressive causes have not. Because it wasn't a progressive cause, it was a conservative one. Mm -hmm. And because it was able, would insisted that we're not going to treat this as a a whole bunch of bigots oppressing us. We're gonna actually break out of the you're a pervert, you're a bigot syndrome into we're human beings. Let us explain to you who we are. Let us, let's, let's respectfully engage you and give you arguments, not, not reason, to change your mind. And if we don't, fine, but the very testimony will might, may shift. And that's a strategy that um, the, the the current progressives are absolutely hostile to uh, and, and are clearly moving against um, on many other issues. Uh, and I, I do think that that really early civil rights movement rather than late civil rights movement idea that our moral witness and our careful persuasion and engagement with people with whom we don't, with whom we really disagree, respect, I went to Notre Dame, I went to Boston College, I went to dozens of Catholic colleges who were happy were willing one of them was not one but several of them were a little queasy and which i just presented the natural law arguments and uh, against homosexuality and tried to explain why i didn't think they made any sense and did so in a respectful way and those silent sympathizers that matthew are very many out there mm -hmm. and and sometimes our facebook polarized world in which you're either pro-gay or you're a hater 
which everybody wants to do, is incredibly counterproductive for our future as a country. I'd like to explore that a little bit more as we get ready to go to uh, questions from you all. So uh, anyone who wants to ask a question, you can start to position yourselves at the microphones here, here, and there's another one up the top. But it sounds unifying, actually, when I hear you talk about this is an opportunity for on the uh, divisive, unifying continuum. That not, you, when you something, not when where something like Gordon College in this state hmm. can be effectively demonized, harassed, and targeted because it wants to uphold traditional Christian teachings with respect to its student body consistently for straight and gay alike. Well, it's not actually consistent at Gordon. Well, it may not be. Because they don't even let, they let straight students date, but no sex before marriage. They don't even let gay students date. If you go on a single date as a gay person, you are liable to well, be kicked out. Sure, but it's, but it's an institution that has a right to, to define its own mission in religious terms. And I think when the, when the member of Congress calls the, the head of the, the church, the, that, that particular school and says, we're gonna destroy you, uh, then I, I, I think that we're, we're in danger. Uh, and we have, to, we have to avoid that. Hmm. I don't feel as free as Andrew does to sort of label something progressive or conservative because I don't feel like a progressive or conservative. And then I just heard Matthew say what the impact of the decision was. But I will say this, which I think should be a warning to all of us. We seem to be a society that thrives on polarization at the moment, that we are a society who wants us to be pushed right over there and right over there. And if this movement makes any sense at all, is that the common ground was this big swath in the middle. And so I think what we have to be, have be prepared to do is to call people when they demonize in that way, either way, uh, Andrew, because I was pretty much demonized the other way. And I think my comfort was saying, because I've come to the United States, I know how wonderful this country is. And I think I hear that resonating in the same. It is just a wonderful country. And we should not be prepared to see it want to swing like this. Americans, I mean, I think we do have a fab fabulous democracy. We, we struggle with religion right from the beginning. We struggle with the balance between religion and non-religion, different religions, uh, different parts of religion have you know, I, I mentioned I'm Episcopalian. There's certainly not unanimity in the Episcopalian church, that's for sure. Um, and the areas in which you work, but I think there's so much common ground amongst Amer Americans, and we just have to fight for that at every level. Well, thank you. We've got uh, several questions to get to. If I could just repeat the rules for the house, uh, please identify who you are and ask a question, not deliver a speech. It ends in a question mark. And please go ahead, start here. Hi, um, I'm Paolo, uh, MPP here at HKS from Italy and happily in a same-sex relationship. Uh, you've done a great job at reconciling being homosexual with being religious or conservative. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about reconciling being a homosexual parent with being religious and conservative? And if I can go a little bit further, in which way would, for example, surrogacy versus adoption be more acceptable to you? N no, I, I, either would be fine by me. <laughs> um, and I, I, I do think in some ways, 
in some ways the world is best divided between those with children and those without children as opposed to gay people and straight people. What's interesting about Family Week, say, in Provincetown is that, is that the straight people have, as, have much more in common suddenly with the gay people than the, <laughs> with the children than the single gay, gay, gay people have with, with other heterosexuals. That's been an incredibly unifying thing too, just handling kids. But um, I, I don't, I, I, my exp I, I, I don't have kids don't, no, and, and don't want to, but my experience has been with other people that it's really a non-issue. Parenting is parenting. It's an incredibly hard and amazing thing, but it's, 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 it's the same for both. Hi, um, I'm Charlotte. I'm a student at the college. Um, my question is more for Matthew. Um, it's really regarding views of homosexuality within the evangelical movement, just distinguishing between people that maybe aren't necessarily as opposed to being gay, but based on scripture, they cannot support gay marriage, and people who are fundamentally like repulsed by gay sexual acts and, and love. How do you go about approaching these two different people, these two different like kinds of thought if they exist, or is one more prevalent than the other? Um, within the evangelical community? Yeah, it depends who you talk to. If people are so repulsed by the idea of gayness that they just shut down when you start talking to them, I will probably direct my energies elsewhere. Um, so I always want to find, I feel like there is, I mean, so my book came out a year and a half ago, and since then I have been absolutely inundated with um, people in the evangelical world um, pastors, other leaders of institutions, writers who are earnestly wrestling with the challenges that this conversation presents and want to have really thoughtful, deep, meaningful conversations on the topic. So I don't spend too much time engaging with the people who might be foaming at the mouth. Um, and when it comes to people who, like if somebody actually, typically though, uh, almost a prerequisite for a really good conversation is having some kind of relationship with um, openly LGBT people. And the more relationships that people have, the more nuanced and sensitive they typically, not always, but typically become in their, in their engagement of the topic. And so I think I just, uh, yeah, it's certainly helpful if people are able to make more distinctions. A common distinction in a lot of places is the whole orientation versus behavior distinction of saying, oh, it's not the orientation that's the problem, it's just acting on it, um, which I think has a lot of flaws um, with that particular perspective, theologically, practically, pastorally. But the yeah, at least when people are making those distinctions, they're probably more liable to be open to conversation. Um, but I also just learned never to try to put people in too many boxes. I have heard about 50 different articulations of why Christians are opposed to same-sex relationships, depending on who I ask. I just always want to probe deeper. Uh, you know, it's not just that you are opposed, it's specifically, you know, like why and what in your theology and what specifically theologically do you think is wrong with same-sex relationships? There are an incredible diversity of answers to that question. Um, so I just always try to engage people sort of on their own terms within their own context. And does that? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Is this on? Okay. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Jane. I just work in the area for a nonprofit, and um, I wanted to thank all of you for your comments. I had a question particularly directed towards Matthew. Um, I really appreciated um, the statement you made when you said that um, 
like an important thing to recognize is that not all natural things should be condemned or condoned. Um, and I was wondering if you could offer um, any insight or just expound upon what criteria you would propose to kind of um, sort through those distinctions. The criteria that I outline in my book is that we should be assessing the morality of different relationships or behavior based on how in alignment they are with the character of God as revealed through Jesus and as revealed through the whole witness of scripture. I think that in scripture, something that we see as a pervasive theme is the covenantal nature of God. God is a God who, in the Christian Bible, in the Christian story, in our faith, who makes and keeps a covenant with his people. And as Ephesians 5 describes marriage, marriage is explicitly related to Genesis 2, the creation of Adam and Eve, the first marriage, and that this is a mystery, and I'm actually speaking, Ephesians 5 says, to Christ and the church. So I think that what is at the core, what is at the essence of marriage, according to scripture, is not procreation. If you look, the role of procreation changes radically from the Old to the New Testament. Uh, it is significantly secondary to the people of God in terms of what their duties and callings are in the New Testament. It's no longer about being born, it's not longer about being born into God's people, it's about being born again. It's not, a, I don't think it's about gender hierarchy. I subscribe to uh, an egalitarian vision of the New Testament and a more egalitarian hermeneutic. I don't think it's about um, bio biological or anatomical fittedness. As some people say, I do think that the essence of marriage theologically, according to scripture, is about making and keeping a covenant with your spouse that reflects God's covenant with humanity. Therefore, because not because same-sex attraction is natural, but because same-sex attraction can be expressed and can be lived out in a way that is reflective of those core aspects of God's nature and that is consistent with the essence of marriage as described by scripture, that is why same-sex marriage should be, should be seen as a good thing. That is why same-sex marriage should be blessed by the church. Thank you. Please go. Um, my name's Paul Miller. I'm a community member. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist, actually attended Gordon College and uh, run their LGBT alumni group and um, now work in the gay community. Uh, I'm somewhat struck by Matthew's articulation about the chasm between religious communities of discrimination or in some ways lack of awareness and you know, uh, the liberal inclusive environments that we experience at Harvard or in Cambridge or me at Fenway Health. Where do you see signs of organizations that are bridging that chasm, like Matthew? You know, is it, can LGBT organizations that existed for marriage equality bridge that chasm? Do there need to be new organizations um, focused on, on that uh, that are different than the organizations that work for political rights? I think a lot of it is to do with peer-to-peer um, with, with -peer interaction within the churches themselves. I mean, if this is what we're talking about, religious communities. Um, you know, in, in some ways, in listening to Matthew, um, uh, you know, about 70% of Catholics support marriage equality. 100% uh, of their hierarchy oppose it uh, for, uh, publicly. Um, and that goes for a whole range of topics. Uh, so I do think that, that in, in some ways, what appears to be uh, chasm is actually when you get down to the pews, the people in there, the people who have 
gay relatives, sons and daughters, friends. So when you go to a mass like I do every week and it's just jam-packed full of gay people, uh, the, the things move. And you can see it last year at the Synod moving on top. I, I, uh, as for organizations, uh, uh, I'm very thrilled that Freedom to Marry is closing down. Uh, I, I, I do believe that institutions that arrive for certain purposes, having achieved their purpose, should go away. Now, many of the people working in that may go on to find other interesting and important work to do. Um, I think the gay rights leadership, insofar as it exists, uh, has begun to understand better the need to, to deal with this kind of talk to religious people and to engage. Certainly, for example, it seems to me that on employment non-discrimination, there's a huge amount of support among people who might otherwise find gay people icky or, or wrong or, 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 or that it's not, it's not fair to fire someone just for that. It just isn't. And, and that's an that's a easy thing that we should be able to do, and yet we have not yet been able to do it. Do, by the way, as a Gordon alumni, um, in your experience, is there real persecution of gay people in that, as opposed to just rigid enforcement of sexual morality? Um, I think you know people suffer under stigma, and uh, you know I, I worked there for three years and didn't come out after until after I left, of course. And um, yeah, I think that you know sometimes the fact that things are being articulated and talked about. They issued a statement today about homosexuality in scripture that I have yet to read because of course, because they're evangelicals, it's like 15 pages long. Um, you know, there's conversation that's happening and, and there's still, uh, you know, I think sometimes the most challenging discrimination is the passive discrimination. It's the, you know, you're not a Christian, you know, you, you're broken. Um, and but that's, that, that's got to exist in a free country. Yeah, but I think the question for an institution like Gordon is, are you meeting your academic mission and are you embodying the church in a way that is robust and full and, and a way that brings life versus um, a way that stigmatizes people who experience discrimination um, quite gravely in a lot of other sectors of the church? Hi. Uh, my name is Maria Beatriz. I'm a fellow here at the Car Center. I'm from Brazil, and there in Brazil we had um, marriage equality since 2011, but now we are seeing some sort of uh, very strong opposition there. Uh, now the evangelical church has managed to elect several members of Congress who are trying to pass new legislation on conversion <laughs> therapies and on the definition of a family as being composed only between a man and a woman. So we had that victory in 2011, but what we are seeing now is a, a strong movement, much more stronger than the LGBT movement, in to bring the country to a, to a step backwards, even back from what we had in 2011. So my question would be, is there here some kind of fear that of, of, of a new challenge, of a new opposition, of something like that being happening as is going on in my country? My invocation of how wonderful it is to be in the United States is partly because of the great constitutions, and Massachusetts is the older, but the United States Constitution. The only fear that I have, which, is, which underlies a lot of Andrew's comments in a certain sense, is that 
I very much hope that the courts won't become the place where there's an attempt to embroil religious rights. That may happen, and I don't mean by that protecting the rights of people to think and believe, uh, which, in which I believe absolutely. But if there's an attempt by legislators and others to go to court to get them to reverse civil marriages, I think that will be very detrimental. Uh, and again, I think at the present time we have a tendency to speak in extreme terms. Um, and we've seen there was an attempt in Massachusetts, uh, there was an attempt in Massachusetts to have a constitutional convention that would provide that the Massachusetts Constitution would not recognize same-sex marriage. So here, and there was a constitutional convention and, and supported by our legislative leaders, including our governor and then Speaker of the House, Alder Macy, that was defeated. So there's a role to do that, but I think it would be unfortunate if the court, wherever the court is, the Supreme Court of Can uh, uh, Kansas or Massachusetts or any place else, were to become embroiled in challenging civil marriage on religious grounds. I think that's a, that's a potential issue for our society. You, the backlash is not unusual. Uh, and this is a huge social change. What I think has been remarkable in this country is how little backlash there has been, um, to be honest. Certainly those of us who, look, who never thought the day would come. Um, the question is whether it really gains momentum. And I don't know enough about Brazil to know that. But, um, but it, it, it's vital that those of us who are gay remain visibly present that we that our role in society is clear that 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 the closet is dead and and that everybody has a right a, a, a obligation to be out there proving it and I think the greatest argument against this are married couples themselves um, and and it's 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 really hard for people to want to tear people away from one another in a marriage no no one it's a very hard thing to do to break up a marriage by law it seems awful and I, uh, so I would say uh, you know hang in expect some of this and certainly globally there is a huge backlash and uh, Putin is is definitely spearheading it and it's going on in Africa and it's going on all over the world God let alone the the Muslim world in in the Middle East uh, and this is just a process um, we had there were moments in, since you know the 90s, early 90s, when we really thought we were going to lose really badly. We came close several times to having everything taken away from us. This is the nature of political revolutions. It is not. There is no such thing. I think it's important. There's no such thing as linear progress. It just doesn't exist. It it, it will come and it will go and it will come and it will go and. But we've had a process of two steps forward, one back, two steps forward, one back. We just took five steps forward. And maybe there's going to be a couple of steps back. But we should be patient and calm and realize we're, we got this. Please. I get <laughs> well, I don't know if you, if you feel like it. <laughs> uh, my name is Evan Lips. I'm a reporter for a local website here called NewBostonPost.com. And my question has kind of to do with the Kim Davis situation. Um, a lot of times there's a lot of people who say, 
that may be the law of the land, you know, but we don't have to follow it. We're Americans, we can, we can speak out, we can protest, but posing this to a any of you, um, for, cons for like the argument for conservatives to follow the law or to hold off and defer to the court, what is the argument there for conservatives to do that? That conservatives believe in the rule of law. And what I think was interesting about Kim Davis is even with this um, absurd lineup of Republican candidates, uh, they didn't all back her up. Uh, I noticed, for example, I don't know whether you saw this, Matthew, that Robbie George has um, put out a, a, a letter saying um, that, that, that public officials should exercise civil disobedience really? uh, and violate the law in all these circumstances. Uh, but that puts him in the minority, even uh, Maggie Gallagher even thought. Maggie Gallagher's name Davis was not on the wrong. list of signatories. But so there, are, there is something out there, but it's, it, it's, it's a damp squib that, that never really made it to the light of day. Glad you brought up Robbie George, because that's exactly who I was Oh, the Obergefell thing that he's yeah, just ex been? Yeah, exactly. I've been fighting Robbie George for like 30 years. Uh, <laughs> and and it's, it's all about natural law, really, for him. Um, and unlike Matt, Matthew, um, for Catholics, the inheritance of Aquinas uh, and Humana Vitae of 1968 makes it enormously difficult for us to get to a place where gay people can be, have a role as couples within the sacrament of matrimony. It, it just huge. Now, it happens that Aquinas didn't understand a lot about nature, not for his fault, but he, he was working in the... 13th century, uh, but the church still has not come to terms with that. And, and, and Humana Vitae, of course, which restricts sex even for procreate, even for heterosexuals to this incredibly tiny, narrow uh, part, uh, that's at the core of this, and, and that's going to be hard to remove. But I, I, I genuinely kind of suspect the current pope uh, feels that it may, may have to at some point disappear. We only have time for one more question, so we'll come over. Hi, my name is Margarita Salas. I'm a mid-career from Costa Rica. Costa Rica is not a secular state. Our constitution mandates that the country's religion is the official religion of the Catholic Roman Church and that the state must fund it. Does it bring up any concerns for you that this uh, flexibilization of uh, human rights speech that is religiously tainted will erode any of the US secular human rights discourse because it's a more palatable discourse for majorities? Which discourse specifically? I mean, because the construction of uh, religious-based argumentation for human rights has a huge role to play in the acceptance of issues by religious people, but does it also have a role in eroding the secular human rights discourse? It must surely depend to a large extent on the text of the Constitution. So the Massachusetts Constitution starts with all people, it used to be all men, all people are born free and equal. And although there were provisions in the Massachusetts Constitution about religion, they didn't govern this. Now, if I have a Constitution and I'm living in another appointed as a justice which said, that whatever emanates from the Vatican is what must govern, you know, that's just a different constitution. So it's, 
you know, we, we feel passionately about religion in the United States. We always have, we always will. We came here, I mean, the, the, the non-indigenous population came here for powerful religious reasons. And it's, I mean, it's part of our history, but I can't imagine lighting Goodridge if you give me a constitution that says the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church will predominate. I mean, maybe Matthew or Andrew well, could give me. A country where the church and state are fused. Um, and, uh, it's not part of your basic, I mean, it's. Yes, it is. I mean, the, the queen, the head of state is the head of the Church of England. Yeah, but the, but the judicial branch, at least, you know, the common law is going to say whatever the queen says, right? Right. Um, oh, so if you have a text that says, right. listen to Her Majesty the Queen, as, you know, articulated by her prime minister, who, of course, she doesn't select, um, it's just very hard for me to get my I, I think. Maybe one of the reasons, we've been talking a lot about religion, and I, I understand your squeamishness about that with respect to this, is partly because we have kind of resolved the civil question here. Um, I do think they are, and, and for, for 20 years I was emphatically, emphatic, this is a civil, civil marriage, not religious marriage. Uh, what I think Matthew and I are trying to do is transform uh, a different sphere, that in a way that buttresses the civil decision, but is absolutely distinct from it. And I think, I think you, you can have two tracks. We've succeeded on the civil track. We have, we have work to do on the human, spiritual, and religious track to understand homosexuals as, 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 as human beings of equal dignity and value in the eyes of God. And that's, that's a whole different uh, agenda. I don't see a, an articulation of a religious case for LGBT equality as infringing upon or undermining secular human rights discourse. Secular and religious human rights discourse has coexisted uh, for quite some time. And in many ways, each can draw strength and improvements from the other. Certainly when it comes to one big failing, there's an evangelical conference called the Justice Conference that some of you may be familiar with. And there are lots of great things about this conference. One problem with it is because it is coming out of the evangelical world, they never speak about LGBT issues. So they speak about trafficking and poverty and race and a number of important issues and LGBT issues are not treated as a justice issue. So there's one respect in which, uh, certainly as a Christian, I think that there is something about a Christian human rights discourse that uh, at least has the potential to be richer uh, and to be rooted in something um, that is more powerful than uh, pure, purely secular human rights discourse. But we can also end up with some significant um, areas that we've missed um, through the just sort of a lot of religious culture and systems of religious power and influence that have left out entire communities. So I think that to the extent that the religious human rights discourse can learn to incorporate LGBT topics into its purview, that will just be something that it sort of, obviously the secular world was ahead of the curve on that one relative to the religious one. That's just something that will have gained and benefited from the advances of in, in many respects, a largely secular, not entirely by any means, but a largely secular LGBT movement. This synod happening right now in Rome, in the Vatican, the first ever time in history that gay people have been able to testify about their lives 
in which the parents of gay children have been able in the Vatican to talk about what it is, even though it was not voted, it was voted down by the majority of the cardinals. Uh, as you know, the Holy Father um, kept, the, kept the deleted text <laughs> in, in the final doc, which had never, also never been done before. So there is a conversation happening. Um, well, there's always been a conversation in the Vatican around homosexuality. We should, we should be quite clear about that. <laughs> but a, a certainly more honest conversation about homosexuality is beginning to occur in the heart of the Vatican, probably the gayest institution outside of Broadway. And then, the, I mean, one other thing one that came to mind as well is for another thing that I think that uh, the religious world and the Christian world, as it hopefully progresses on this topic, can draw from a lot of the existing secular LGBT movement is if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, one thing that that movement has done more effectively than probably any other social movement to date is the incorporating, um, I mean, some people hate buzzwords, but, you know, to have an intersectional approach to advocacy in the sense that that movement was started by queer women of color. And so it has a very strong emphasis on not only black lives matter, but black trans lives matter and black queer lives matter. That's something that I am really working toward in the Reformation Project and the work that we're doing, not just securing the acceptance of white cisgender gay men in conservative Christian communities. I mean, I am one, so I would appreciate that, but there, there are a lot more layers that often I, I don't want us to lose because especially a lot of well-off gay men have sort of a, have achieved a lot of our important goals. I don't want us to lose a sense of solidarity with a lot of the LGBT communities that still are sort of facing much harsher oppression than we are. Even just this weekend, there was a 21-year-old woman, Zella Ziona, a black trans woman in Maryland who was shot to death. She was the 21st trans woman of color to be murdered in the United States this year. So there are some, like some of us need to learn to get out of attack mode all the time and out of battle mode. Other people don't have the luxury of doing that because their, their very personhood, their, their sense of physical safety is constantly in danger. And I do hope that um, gay men and white gay men in particular um, continue to care just as much about those concerns and those communities as about the ones that have directly faced us. Well, this rounds out our evening, and I just want to thank each and every one of you on behalf of the Harvard Kennedy School, the Institute of Politics, the Center for Public Leadership. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. It's not a forum without a forum for the conversation. And I would like to close out tonight by just thanking our incredible panelists, Chief Justice Marshall, Andrew Sullivan, and Matthew Vine. Thank you. Just a reminder, the book signing on behalf of Matthew Vines and the Coop following tonight. And please be safe on your way home. This concludes the forum. Thank you. <laughs>